Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Sathya Sam here, and welcome to Unleash the Man Within. Thank you guys for tuning in today. And we have a really spectacular interview with Shannon Etheridge. Uh, you may not recognize that name, but Shannon is probably one of the longest-standing female faith-based practitioners in the sexual integrity and sexual recovery space. She is absolutely phenomenal. She wrote a book called Every Woman's Battle, uh, kind of a play on the uh, original book by Stephen Arterburn, Every Man's Battle. And um, she has literally sold millions of copies between that book and a few other ones that are really popular. She's been on you know all the major TV platforms, both faith-based and non-faith-based. And she is absolutely phenomenal. And so we cover a bunch of things in the interview today. Um, we talk about fantasies quite a bit. That's where we spend a majority of the time. How to make sense of fantasies, how to leverage fantasies and work through them. Um, we also talked about female sexuality and, and how to understand female sexuality as a man. We talked about how couples can work through um, issues with sex. We talked about is masturbation a sin? And she had a really interesting take on it. Um, one that I, I think I would agree with, although she kind of said it in ways that I, I was like, huh, I, I have to kind of work through that. And so, um, so, you know, we get some guests on here where everything that they talk about, I'm like, yes, yes, you know, and it's like, this is exactly it. Um, we got some guests on here where uh, I'm like, oh man, I don't know if I agree with a bunch of the stuff that you're saying. And um, I would say, Shannon, um, I agree with everything she said. I think the way that she said some things was was really interesting. And and you'll see exactly what I mean. But here's the deal. You know, we live in a society where it's like if if you don't agree fully with me, then people start canceling, right? Cancel culture. And they're up in arms and whatever, whatever. And I do not subscribe to that philosophy one bit. That's absolute baloney. I think the truth is we are better in our diversity. We are better to understand people's differences. And a difference of opinion actually is really good. It, it challenges us and it gives us a chance to um, to get clear on what we believe and maybe to explore in the areas where we have not fully explored and done due diligence yet. And so I hope this interview will cause you to do that. I know it certainly did that for me. And I also trust you guys. I know you guys are smart enough to discern and and decode and read through messages and and you know come up with something or or some sort of resolution of here's what I believe or here's what I think about that. And I hope that's what you'll do with the information that we share in the podcast today. One other just quick um, point to make before you go in is Shannon gives some really specific examples when we talk about healing through um, sexual trauma and sexual fantasies and leveraging those for healthy sexuality with your spouse. And so all that is to say is there could be some content that's triggering. There's one or two cuss words in here. It's just one of those kinds of interviews. And so I want you to be aware of that. And I want you to just make a good decision. If you don't think you can handle um, descriptions of, of some of the people's um, you know past sexual experiences and how they've worked through it and what it looks like for them now uh, in their marriage, then I totally understand. There's plenty of other content for you to peruse here in the podcast. Um, and if you do feel like you can handle it, then without further ado, here's my interview with Shannon Etheridge. Enjoy. So here's the million dollar question. How are men like us who work hard, have good motives and a God-given purpose supposed to fulfill the calling on our lives and the dreams in our hearts, all while establishing sexual integrity, thriving relationships and a meaningful connection with God? That is the question. And this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Sathya Sam. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. Okay, well, I'm here with Shannon Etheridge, and uh, I've been trying to get you on the podcast for a while here. We, we tried a couple of different dates, <laughs> and we finally managed to make it work. Thank you so much for being here, Shannon. It's been a long time in coming. Thank you for your patience as I was recovering <laughs> from surgery, but I've been looking forward to this as well, Cynthia. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, well, you know, one of my goals probably in the last three to six months has been to have more of a female presence. We've had people talking about betrayal trauma. Uh, we've had women talking about their own porn addictions and a little bit of everything in between. But I really like some of the messaging that you have around um, your systems, helping men understand the female side of sexuality, helping couples work through sexual dynamics. And and uh, you have a really good take on fantasies as well, which we're going to jump into here in a little bit. But I wonder if you can just set the stage for us by talking um, about why you got interested in this line of work in the first place. 
Yeah, absolutely. Ironically, I started out as a mortician and I was expecting to be embalming people in their 80s or 90s who just reached the end of their life and died of natural causes. But I was shocked at how many people I was embalming in their 20s and early 30s, either Hmm. because they committed suicide when they got an HIV positive diagnosis or they died of complications because of full-blown AIDS. Now, this was back in the late 80s where HIV was pretty much a death sentence and praise God, we've gone much further down the road with medicine in this era. But back then I was just so surprised at the consequence uh, of, you know, of what this disease could do to the body because I had been a very promiscuous teenage girl. Hmm. And I distinctly remember wondering, God, how did you save me from myself and my own stupidity? Like, how is it not me on this embalming table instead Hmm. of the one standing over it? And I remember hearing God say, Shannon, I'll redeem your past if you'll trust me with your future. And I had no idea what that would look like, but I ventured from the mortuary into youth ministry because I wanted to teach young people how to avoid my embalming table. Can I just pause you for a sec? How did you you become a mortician in the first place? Like what inspires somebody to go in that line of work? I wanted to become Quincy. Do you remember the television show Quincy with Jack Klugman? Where he's doing autopsies and eating a hamburger, like totally unfazed by the whole thing. I wanted to be a pathologist, but I couldn't afford medical school. So I thought being a mortician (laughs) would be the next best thing. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sorry. I was just curious. Yeah, it's a pretty common question. Uh, So once I got into youth ministry, what I noticed is that the questions that teenagers most often had were all about sex. They didn't feel like they could ask their parents. They didn't feel like they could ask their pastors. So I kind of evolved with my audience. I went from junior high and high school to college to adults. And now I'm 54 years old and been doing this for 30 years. And I just feel as if human sexuality is one of the most fascinating topics on the planet. So many layers to it. So multifaceted. And it's still one of the things that we're most curious about no matter what age we are. Yeah, it's so true. And like you think about how sexualized our culture has become and it hasn't slowed down the questions by any means, right? Like we're we're just as curious as we've ever been. So that's really cool. Yeah. And yeah, I've written 22 books on the subject now and I still get Jeez. tons of questions via email. And you would think that I would have, you know, exhausted all of those questions and answers and possibilities, but I feel as if this is a conversation that could go on until the cows come home and we would never cover all the territory because it's just human sexuality is so unique. It's as unique as our fingerprint. So every person is going to have a totally different paradigm, totally different set of fantasies, totally different set of desires, totally different set of questions. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. So let's let's dive into it a little bit. Um, I, I think one of the things I'm really excited to talk to you about is sexual desires and fantasies and kind of, I guess, just how to make use of them or not make use of them, but make sense of them rather and identify their origins and resolve them and everything else. Um, so maybe let's just start broad a little bit. Like what what is often causing a sexual fantasy Yeah, this was a topic that I was so fascinated by for so many years because most often I would have people of all ages asking questions of what does it mean that I fantasize about this? So whether it was same-sex attraction or a a pastor or a coworker or a neighbor or BDSM or, you know, like we could go on and on with the list of possible fantasies and fetishes. What people really were asking is, am I okay? Like, is this just totally perverted? And am I just a horrible person for having these thoughts? And I did research, but there was no Christian book out there addressing what fantasies are, how to identify where they come from, what what purpose they serve, whether they're sinful or not, what we're supposed to do with them. And so I decided to write my own. I wrote a book called The Fantasy Fallacy, subtitled Understanding the Meaning Behind Our Sexual Thoughts and Feelings. Mm-hmm. And so I dove into the subject and had to research through the mainstream outlets. I, I read so many amazing books and it all just crystallized in my mind how and why God made our brains the way that he did. I think that fantasy is a gift. I think that we have certainly 
throwing the baby out with the bathwater to assume that, well, Christians shouldn't have those kind of thoughts and, you know, uh, married people shouldn't have those kind of thoughts. And Hmm. the reality is, is these thoughts come part and parcel with being human. They don't start when we get married or, or when we look at porn or when we cross a line. They start really early in our lives and there's always a story to tell. And Sathya, here's how to kind of make sense of the story. If you ask people to make a list of their greatest traumas, trials, and tragedies, the things that just really overwhelmed them, family deaths, divorces, uh, moves, you know, like leaving friends, leaving schools, you know, the big stuff in a kid's life. And then you also ask this person to make a list of their most unconventional fantasies, the ones they would never want to tell anyone about. Those two lists are usually mirror images of one another. In other words, the purpose of fantasy is to compartmentalize pain long enough to make room for pleasure. It's like a switch track. You remember Thomas the Tank switch track pieces where the train could only go one direction or the other? (laughs) So the brain can't possibly process intense pain and intense pleasure at the exact same time. Envision trying to have an orgasm while you're hitting your thumb with a hammer. It's not going to happen, right? The same thing is true about emotional pain. We cannot be in an orgasmic state of mind, which is healthy. This is what God designed the brain and body to do. And there's a a myriad of health benefits. I think like 250 health benefits. And so we can't get into that healthy frame of mind and experience that release and that bonding that comes with our partner if we're totally entrenched in the emotional pain and the story of our childhood. So our brain creates a story that is the polar opposite of that childhood experience. And that's what compartmentalizes that pain long enough to make room for the pleasure. Wow. That is a really, really insightful explanation. So is is it kind of like fantasy is um, almost like this innate coping mechanism that, that we use to, to deal with pain? Absolutely. And let me tell you why I'm so glad that God wired our brains this way. I want you to imagine, you know, obviously I deal with both men and women, but you know, I, I have a lot of women who have been sexually abused as children because let's just face it, young girls are targets so often. And I want you to envision whether it's a boy or a girl, just a child being molested if their brain can't check out and go somewhere else, which is what usually happens, they usually zone out and mentally go to someplace else entirely, Disney World or their friend's backyard or whatever, just to disconnect from the grotesque reality of what's actually happening in that moment. If God didn't give us that ability, if we had to experience everything in real time, regardless of how mature our brain is or whether we can handle that emotionally, that would be torture. So I feel as if God gave us this ability to switch tracks and to go down a different track for very good reason. Hmm. And I actually think that if you can harness that power and make sense of why you experience the fantasies that you do and that you can be open and honest and, and intimate enough with your partner, trusting enough with your partner to let them know what goes on through your head. I think that's the best definition of intimacy. I can imagine hmm. into me. See, you're going to know what turns me on, what floats my boat. Even if it's something I would never do, even if it's something that I've never done and never intend to do, it's still what turns you on. The, the reality is, is the things that turn us on are often things that we would never actually want to have happen in real life. And that's where that template comes from. It's a mirror image of what happened to you as a child, most likely. It's really interesting. Um, you and I both come from faith-based perspectives. And I think sometimes we made the mistake of over-spiritualizing a lot of the different sexual experiences that we have. And I think fantasies would be probably at the top of that list. We have we have a, you know, we have a, a lustful fantasy or thought in our head, and we bind it and we rebuke it in the name of Jesus. And, um, you know, obviously there's a spiritual component to that, so not to negate it. But how do you, how do you make sense of your spiritual fantasies with that lens in mind as well? Because obviously there's a psychological aspect, um, but there's a spiritual aspect too. How do they integrate? Right. I, I totally agree. I was raised with the mentality of, you know. To avoid even a hint of sexual immorality, that means that you can't even have a thought about anyone right. that you know is not already your your spouse. 
Well, that is just so not how the world works. That's not how the human brain works. And this is how my human sexuality professor at Liberty University, which is a very conservative Christian school, this is how he broke it down for me that really lifted the veil. He asked a series of questions. The first question was, was Jesus tempted sexually? Well, we know that he was because Hebrews 4.15 tells us he was tempted in every way known to man. And there's no asterisk that says, well, every way except for sexually, because he wasn't one of those kind of guys. No, he was human, fully God, fully human. So he was definitely a sexual being. So he definitely was tempted sexually. So the next question is, did Jesus have sexual thoughts and feelings? Isn't that the definition of a temptation? We have a thought that produces a feeling, and then we decide if we're going to act out on it or not. And so the next question was, are sexual thoughts and feelings sinful in and of themselves, not acted out on, just the thought and the feeling in and of itself? Well, if Jesus was tempted in every way but was without sin, that equation breaks down if sexual thoughts and feelings are sinful. Mm -hmm. And this is where people want to say, well, only sexual thoughts and feelings about your spouse aren't sinful. Anything else is sinful. Well, who was Jesus's spouse? He didn't have one. So again, that equation breaks down. So I think that we have to challenge lovingly the church to say, since when did we get the idea that God expects us to be even holier than Jesus himself? Mm. We have to understand that a thought that produces a feeling is not a sin. It's what you do with that thought and feeling. I often tell, I, I know that that we have both Christians and non-Christians listening. So I just have to test the waters. If if I drop a little bit of profanity, is that going to offend you or your audience? Oh, no, go ahead, Jen. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Thank you for asking, though. <laughs> this notion that even a thought makes it a sin is just bullshit. It's hmm. just the biggest bunch of legalistic putting a burden on people's backs far greater than they could possibly bear kind of bullshit. Mm. Uh, When you unpack Matthew five and you look at what was, who was the speaker? Who is he speaking to? When you break down those hermeneutical questions to help us understand that passage of scripture, it had nothing to do with a sexual doctrine. It was a salvation doctrine. Jesus was speaking to the disciples and the others gathered on the sermon for the sermon on the Mount. And he was unpacking what it takes to get into heaven. And he was addressing the Pharisees' notion that they didn't need a Messiah. They were good enough to get themselves into heaven. Mm. So he reached into their life and pulled out the thing that they do so commonly that no one could deny it. And it was, if you even look upon a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, does that mean if we in our modern day notice that someone is attractive, we've already committed adultery and we should gouge out our eyes like the Bible (laughs) says to? Mm -mm. Mm-mm. Uh-uh. Jesus was not speaking literally. He was speaking figuratively. And if he was speaking literally, the entire church should be walking around blind yeah. uh, and, and no hands. Without hands. You know? Yep. Yep. Right. And so you asked me, what is the thing that got me most interested in this field of study? So let me tell you about a conversation that I had around a dinner table when I was 16. Okay. I was visiting my aunt and cousins and my cousins all said, mom, tell Shannon what happened to your neighbor. And so she proceeded to tell me that she had an unchurched neighbor that she invited to church. And it was just a little local country church with a pastor that had never gone to seminary. He didn't know anything about hermeneutics. He preached Matthew 5, 27 through 29 as if it were literal, not figurative. And so he eisegeted it instead of exegeted it. Later that week my aunt gets a call from this woman's husband saying, I think you need to get down here right now. She got there just before the ambulance and found her friend curled up in the fetal position in her bedroom with a spoon in her hand. And she had gouged her eyeball out of its socket because she had been having inappropriate thoughts about her boss that she had never acted out on and never would act out on. But she thought the only way to have a relationship with God and to be right with God is to do what the Bible says. So does that kind of lift the veil at just how extreme some people have taken this interpretation and have, again, made it so much more difficult than God intended it to be? If the Mm. sexual standard is so high that we can't even have a sexual thought or feeling without it 
be without us deserving hell, we've got we're in, you know we're in trouble. The entire world is going to hell. So it's not a sexual doctrine. It is a salvation doctrine. End of story. Yeah. And Jesus himself had sexual thoughts and feelings. So this idea that we are so guilty and we need to beat ourselves up, and that's where. We get a slippery slope of, well, I'm already guilty, so I may as well just go ahead and look at the porn. I may as well go ahead and masturbate. I may as well go ahead and call the prostitute. I may as well, may as well, may as well. Stop. Stop the madness and give yourself grace. You're just as human as Jesus himself was. You're yeah. going to have those thoughts and feelings. Yeah. And thank you for mentioning that as well, because I, I could see the pen. Like, I know that was my experience was grew up very conservative, super rigid, you know, like a really clear black and white line. And then... Getting permission to cross that line into sort of like a more embracing God-given attraction, all that was uh, was dangerous, right? Like it was almost scary because it was like, am I just going to veer off track here? Uh, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So what mm -hmm. what does it look like, um, you know, for somebody, they're, they're an adult now, they're dealing with these fantasies, maybe they're married and the fantasies don't concern their spouse. Um, how do you reconcile these things and, and begin unpacking them? Let me tell you a story that I think I, I would rather show you than tell you. Is that Please. okay? Yes. I, I can philosophize and theologize about this stuff all day long, but I feel like a picture is worth a thousand words. So I'm going to paint you a picture of the type of work that I do in my coaching office. Okay. So a couple came to me several years ago, middle, middle age, 50s, and she was ready to divorce her husband because she had caught him looking at pornography three times. And she had told him in the beginning three strikes and you're out. And so they got along great in every other way. They were financially stable. Kids were grown, good provider, salt of the earth kind of people, deacon of the church. You wouldn't think that she'd be willing to divorce him over that, but that was a hill she was willing to die on. But I told her before you divorce your husband and throw out a perfectly good marriage, in my opinion, how about if we just seek to understand what he's looking for when he looks for porn, hmm. she assumed that he is looking for a young, quite fit supermodel. And she <laughs> felt as if there was no way she could compare to that. Right. But I could tell by the look on this guy's face that she was off base. But I, I didn't know, you know, what direction his fantasies took him online. So what I said to him is, Robert, I'm going to hand you my laptop. And I said, I want you to put the words that you normally put in your search engine to find the exact type of porn that you look for. Because there's a million different types of porn. There is something very unique that we look for when we put those words in the search engine. He was mortified. He <laughs> he hesitated so much. And I told him, I said, your wife isn't going to see this. I just I just need to know for my own sake, so that I know what direction to take this conversation. So he put it in and he handed it back to me. It wasn't young, white, fit supermodels. <laughs> the two words were granny porn. Hmm. So I'm like, where did this come from? There's got to be a story here. Right. So I had asked him to do this exercise that I have pretty much every client do. It's called the 20 most pivotal moments exercise where they map out the 20 most pivotal experiences of their entire life on a chronological timeline. Hmm. And this is when I learned that Robert, when he was five and his little brother was three, his mother abandoned them, left town with her pimp, became a crack whore basically. And his dad could not afford to keep, you know, up the bills without taking a second job. So here he has these two little boys having to work two jobs with a saving grace was this little old lady down the street named Miss B. She would, uh, or she would, she told Robert Sr., the dad, if you will drop those boys off at my house uh, or, or just let them get off the school bus at my house, I will feed them a snack, help them with any homework, even give them a bath and feed them dinner if that's what you need me to do because she wanted the time that he had with his boys to be quality time, not work time. Hmm. So until from the time he was five until he was 14. So nine years, he is going to Mrs. B's house every day after school. And he said, I remember she would bake us cookies. She taught me how to cook. Uh, she would have us watch TV snuggled on the couch. She would run her fingers along my scalp and just give me a scalp massage while I was watching television. And that's when I pieced it together. And so I explained to his wife, I said, look, you're wrong about what he's looking for. He's looking for much older women with younger men. 
and her face just went blank. And she said, well, I really can't compete with that because I don't have a gray hair in my head and black don't crack. And I said, he doesn't need you to look old. He needs you to act nurturing. That's the secret. And even Robert is like putting the pieces of the puzzle together going, I think that's right. So I had her sit in the crook of my L-shaped sectional sofa and had Robert put his head in her lap. And I said, what I want you to do is I want you to massage his scalp and sing him a lullaby and just watch what happens. And she started doing that. And a little tear formed in the corner of his eye and started trickling down his face. And so she leaned in and started massaging harder and singing a little bit more confidently. And all of a sudden the dam broke. He just gushed and it was just sobbing. His big old chest was just heaving. And he mm -hmm. finally got the words out. He said, this is what I've always needed, but I didn't know how to ask you for it. And so I would just look at porn to feel that feeling of being nurtured and safe and secure and then wow. come to you. Yeah. So that totally changed her perspective. And she was able to forgive him and say, you can always ask me for this. You never have to look online at somebody else. You can always say, could you hold me like a baby? Hmm. Men can ask for that. Women can ask for that. So helping men and women, because it's not always the men that are addicted to porn. A lot of times it is the women. Yeah. May I tell you another quick story that Please. helped a woman unravel her pornography addiction? Yes. Her husband was also high up in the church and was just mortified at how much time she would waste online looking at porn. And she admitted she was addicted. So she came to one of my four-day workshops and I asked her, what are the words that you put in your search engine to find the porn that you're looking for? And she hemmed and she hawed and she said, well, it's threesomes. And I said, well, that's one of the most common searches. And she said, it's not what you're thinking though. It's not two women and a man. She said, I'm looking for two men and a woman. And I said, okay, well, it comes from somewhere. Tell me about your childhood. And so she proceeded to tell me that she had an older brother and a younger brother and parents who were stoners. They would lock themselves up in their bedroom and get high as a kite. And their bedroom was on one side of the house and the kids' bedrooms were on the other side of the house. And that's when her older brother would drag her into the room that he shared with their younger brother. She was about eight years old and he would molest her. From the ages of eight to 12, he molested her routinely. And she said, I distinctly remember thinking, if I scream, my parents won't hear me or they won't care because they're high or he's going to hurt me. And her only saving grace was, but if my little brother needs a toy out of their room, there's a key underneath the baseboard. Maybe he'll remember that it's there and will walk in and disrupt the cycle. So another element of the porn, though, is not just so you see where the two men and one woman comes from is that was her family of origin. But right. the dynamic had to be that the woman was totally dominant, totally in control, mirror image of her being the victim and being powerless. So mirror image, once she understood that, she just had so much grace for herself. And I asked her, have you ever, ever, ever told anyone about your sexual abuse? Never. That day was the first day she had ever uttered a word about it. So talk about a healing journey for her to go back to her husband and say, you've never known this about me after 18 years of marriage, but I was sexually abused by my brother for four years. It helped him connect the dots and not throw a stone at her and just help her through that healing journey. That is so profound, really insightful. And it is interesting, like even if you contrast the two stories, you have one where um, there wasn't any abuse, like there wasn't anything traumatic. It was just a dynamic that existed in his upbringing that kind of led right. to those desires and appetites. Well, we, we underestimate the, the, the dynamic of being abandoned that in and of itself was the trauma, not yeah. having mama be there as he was growing up. That was the trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, but obviously they had a really fierce connection because he learned when he was 17 that Miss B had died a year earlier and she left him all of her money to go to college on. So, wow. you know, obviously a strong mother son type of bond that they had, which is a beautiful thing that God yeah. gave him a surrogate mama. Now you understand why he looks for what he looks for in porn. 
But if his wife's heart is ripped out and stomped on when he looks to images of other human beings, instead of just asking for what he needs from her, Mm -hmm. that's where the line is drawn. So this is where I say understanding your sexual fantasy template is one thing, but drawing boundary lines is another. Just because it's your fantasy doesn't mean that you have to bring it to life and certainly doesn't mean you have to act out on it. Because again, there are people with very unhealthy and very what we would consider sinful in the church um, sexual activities that that's their fantasy. But the fastest way to screw up, I'll just, I'll I'll soften it. The fastest way to screw up your life is to try to turn your fantasies into reality. Fantasies are not intended for your reality world. Your reality world is intended for bonding and vulnerability and intimacy and connection with a real life partner that you grow up and old with. But keeping those fantasies within your head and only fueling, only using that as fueling the fire between you and your spouse, that's where it's magical. It is totally Mm. magical. So it sounds like you can actually leverage your fantasies because when they arise, you can identify, oh, this is indicating like, here's what I'm actually looking for clearly in this fantasy. And then you can find a healthier option, ideally, I suppose, to, to get it met with your wife. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just kind of an example of that. I'm, I'm often pretty vulnerable on my own podcast, so I don't know why I wouldn't choose to be the same on yours. By um, all means. When, when I did my 20 most pivotal moments exercise years ago, um, my most traumatic experience, bar none, is when I was four, I had an eight-year-old sister who died suddenly of an aneurysm. And my brother and father just emotionally shut down. Um, and really my mom did too, to an extent, but not as much as my dad and brother. And so the thing that most bewildered me when, once I entered into the era of my life where I understood my sexuality more and I could understand what masturbation and orgasm and all that stuff was, what I noticed is that my fantasies were never heterosexual in nature. They were always homosexual in nature, but I had never even felt an attraction to a girl. And the idea of being with another woman was something that kind of repulsed me. But yeah, I'm the kid who got sent to the principal uh, in kindergarten for kissing a boy on the cheek during milk break. You know, like I I was very, very heterosexual. I had tons of boyfriends growing up. Like I said, very promiscuous as a teenager. So it did not make sense to me why my fantasies were lesbian, but my orientation was heterosexual. Once I learned all this about the fantasy template, the being the mirror image of your trauma, it made perfect sense. So the fact that I've never, ever, ever even stepped a toe over that line, it gives me so much confidence that I can minister to women without any anxiety of, oh, well, you know, will I, will I cross a boundary or whatever? I don't worry about that. Does my husband know that that's my fantasy? Absolutely, he does. He's actually professor of counseling and teaches human sexuality. So he totally got it when I explained <laughs> it to him. Sure. Does he use that to his advantage sometimes? Hell yeah. Does it fuel our lovemaking? Hell yeah. Do right. I feel bad about it? Hell no. Because it's not something I've ever acted out on. So there's kind of a very graphic, probably more information than you needed about me. But sometimes I just really like to paint a clear picture for people what it looks like. There's a big difference between having a thought or a feeling and acting it out. Having a thought or feeling, you're in the same camp as Jesus was. Acting it out is what's going to screw up your life. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. We were talking about this on our podcast maybe a week or two ago, but your personality is more or less made up of your decisions, right? It's not the thoughts Mm -hmm. you have. It's the ones that you actually act on. That's what really makes up who you are. And I think you're right. There's a a very clear line between those two. Um, What would this look like for somebody who's single? Because I guess, you know, they can obviously still pay attention to the fantasy. They can articulate kind of the need or whatever might be underlying in it. What are some healthy ways that they can respond if they don't have that sexual partner? Well, the most common question that I get from single people is, do I think that masturbation is a sin? And I, again, in that human sexuality class at Liberty University, I was challenged by my professor because I had written basically that masturbation was a sin. Show me in the Bible where it says that. 
the entire class was given two hours to search scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and come up with scriptural foundation for this thing that the church has been teaching for eons and we couldn't do it. And he, mm. he challenged us back and said, how is that any different than what the Pharisees were doing to the people that made Jesus so angry that he overturned the money changers table saying, you're putting a burden on people's backs far greater than I intended for them to bear. Mm. And so it really caused me to take a step back and examine is what I'm teaching about masturbation, not quite accurate. So this is what I believe currently is that anything that you're a slave to anything that controls you, whether you instead of you controlling it, that's a problem. If it's a problem because you're missing work or there's a hole in your bucket and you don't have sexual energy for your mate, you know, like obviously it can be a problem. If you're pulling up next to a park and watching children play while you masturbate, that's a problem. You know, it, it, it's not that it's never a sin. It's that I don't believe that it's always a sin. And mm. I think that for a single person to take, to harness their sexual power and their sexual drive, and to take matters into their own hands so that they can be a good steward of that energy and not force it onto another human being prematurely in a relationship or out of a relationship. I think that that's probably the holiest thing imaginable. I remember when my son was 16 and started dating, I just told him, Matt, if you ever had to choose between coercing a girl into doing something that she's not ready to do or taking matters into your own hands, I hope you'll always choose the latter. And he said, I can do that. That's not a sin. So as long as it doesn't control you, as long as you're not attaching it to pornography. Now, this is where people, people assume that masturbation means looking at pornography and touching yourself. What did people do long before pornography was invented <laughs> yeah. in 1952 by Playboy? You have to separate looking at other human beings doing all kinds of cockamamie acts to one another and simply going inside yourself and self-soothing with self-gratification. I don't see in scripture where that's forbidden if it's healthy. In fact, some biblical scholars say that the passage of scripture about draw from your own well, drink from your own cistern, hmm. that that is not just about your wife and not going after someone else's wife, that that could also be interpreted as take care of yourself sexually rather than acting out with someone else if you're single. But now the person who's totally addicted to pornography and they're masturbating multiple times a day or a week and it's gotten out of hand and it's more, they probably do need to starve that desire completely until they get it under control. So I'm not saying knock yourself out, do it all, all you want. I'm just simply saying, I don't see in scripture where we are called to be completely celibate of any sexual energies whatsoever. And I actually think that that's one of the beefs that I have with the Catholic church is because they've set that standard so high for yeah. Catholic priests but look at what it's created, a lot of sexual <laughs> abuse of altar boys. Yeah. So I just wish that we as a society could find a healthy middle ground where we let the beach ball rest on the surface of the water where it belongs. Because if we're trying to repress it, if we're always trying to force it to the bottom of the pool, that's where if we're not vigilant, if we're not vigilant, our hand is going to slip. And that beach ball is going to come flying up, not just to the surface of the water, but way oh, up into the sky, crashing yeah. back down, create ripple effects, hurt lots of people. That's what happens when pastors and dads and bosses and leaders, politicians, that's what happens when they repress, 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 and then it explodes. Instead of repression and explosion, how about if we just learn healthy expression of our sexuality? Just give mm. ourselves the grace to be human, but harness it to our advantage and use it to bond deeply with one human being that will help us become our highest selves. Yeah, that's so good, Shannon. And I, you might be the first person on our podcast that's really articulated that stance so clearly. So thank you for doing that. Because um, we've had a, a myriad of guests, you know, and they, some of them would be much stronger against it. Some of them would be totally for it. And I think um, that, that, I don't know if I would call it a middle ground. I don't want to just make it that clear, but um, that, that's really a, a helpful way to approach it. So I do appreciate that. Yeah, I, I just think that um, there has to be a healthy balance. My husband frequently says the extremes are never helpful. So to say it's always a sin or never yeah. a sin, yeah. I just don't think that that's helpful at all. We have to find find a healthy we have to find a healthy middle ground. So Sophia, that 
leads me to a, a concept that I've developed over the past 30 years of coaching with women about a pendulum swing. Can I explain that? Yes, I was just about to ask about it. Go for it. Yeah. So, so oftentimes women come into my workshops and they feel as if they are a complete hoochie mama or a total frigid prude. Again, extremes, not helpful. Hmm. What I have observed is that women, their sexuality, sometimes it swings too far to the left. Sometimes they do things that they never in a million years thought that they would do. Maybe they're addicted to pornography or they're interacting in a sexy chat room with somebody who's not their husband or they're borderline or maybe they're having an affair. Or there are other seasons of that same woman's life where she swings too far to the right. She is like sexually shut down. She lost that love and feeling and she doesn't know how to find it. And she doesn't know if she even wants to find it again. And so that pendulum swing from right to left, when a woman looks at an aerial view of her life, that is most likely what she'll see. She'll see seasons where she had a lot of sexual energy and maybe she did a good job of harnessing it. Maybe she didn't. There'll be other seasons where there's a big lack of energy. Maybe she's pregnant or nursing or her husband has been unfaithful or is addicted to porn and she feels like he doesn't find me attractive. And so she shuts down to protect her ego. Hmm. Either extreme, unhealthy. So my goal is always to help women and men when I'm working with men is to help people find a healthy middle ground where they're interested in motivated sex partners, but only with their spouse, not someone else. Right. If we can all show up in our own sexual skin in life and be sexually confident and make our partners feel loved and cherished and desired and experience those feelings ourselves, that's how we avoid the extremes. So if you or your mate is on one of those extremes, I hope that you'll reach out uh, and learn more about my one-on-one -on -one coaching or my couples coaching or my four-day intensive workshops. Uh, they're called Women at the Well for exclusively eight to 10 women at a time. Or I also do Couples at the Well where we have four or five couples show up and my husband and I work together to help them identify their 20 most pivotal moments, their sexual template, how they can open lines of communication with one another and ask for what they need and heal the old wounds that have kept them apart sexually probably for far too long. Yeah, yeah, that's really insightful. And I, I would imagine that exact pendulum swing exists in men as well. I mean, even like the, the Catholic priest example is obviously an extreme example but a great demonstration of what happens when you have high suppression in one area, it tends to lead to high expression in another, right? Like it's, it's got to give one way or the other. Like biscuit dough out of a can. It eventually comes <laughs> oozing out and it's really hard to put that back in. But if you just, if you, if you restrict it to strictly a fantasy realm and you refuse to act out on it because you're taking that thought captive and making it obedient to Christ, you mm. can walk in freedom. It does not have control over you at all. That's really insightful. So, okay, let's let's try to piece some of this together. Can you cast some vision of, let, you're, let's say you're talking to somebody who's never heard any of this before. They're rife with fantasy. They they just thought they were this wretched old sinner. And now you're 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 showing them a path here of of truth, you know, a path to kind of walk down. What's at the end of this path? Like when you get to the other side of this. What, what does it look like? Just give us a, a, a little bit of vision. You've given some great examples. So whatever you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to unpack another story that I think just really illustrates the freedom that can come as a result of understanding what you really need in order to, to be the mirror image of your trauma. There was okay. a woman who reached out, uh, again, middle 50s. Um, she was ready to divorce because she hated sex. She said, I don't care if I ever have sex again. And I said, what do you feel when you and your husband are having sex? And she said, I just feel so small and powerless and suffocated. And I said, when is the earliest in your life that you remember feeling small, powerless and suffocated? It didn't take her long. When she was 11 years old, her dad's brother came to live with them for a couple of months. And pretty much two or three times a week, he would come into her room, 11 years old, get on top of her. He would basically put his penis between her thighs and not penetrate her, but that is how she learned 
what a condom was is because she knew what ejaculation was, but she never had learned about condoms, but there was never any fluid, but she, she would hear him like put it on and take it off and, and just panic. And it just, you could imagine how an 11 year old would feel with this happening in her world, but she was too afraid to tell her parents, her uncle was destitute and didn't have any way of, of taking care of himself. And so she held that secret inside of her, her entire life had never told anyone. So I asked her, I said, so my understanding is that the position your uncle was in was that he was on top and you were on your back, correct? And she said, yes. And I said, what is the position that you most often are attempting to make love with your husband in? And she said, well, the missionary position, isn't that the only holy way? I said, whoever told you that is, is just, that's just a crock of shit right there. It, 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 they don't call it the missionary position because it's the only holy way. They call it that because missionaries got uptight about third world's tribes having sex in all kinds of cockamamie ways. And it, it shocked them and they tried to tone them down. So I just told her, you are recreating the trauma for yourself by being yeah. in the exact same position. And I said, is your husband much bigger than you? She said, yeah, he's 300 pound cop. So yeah, in other words, you feel like that helpless, powerless child and I said, here's what I want to challenge you to do before you decide to divorce him for no other reason other than you hate sex. I said, I want you to turn this dynamic on its head. I want you to get on top. She was just like, oh, no, I could never do that. I said, give it. Don't knock it until you try it. Hmm. Just try it. Try it at least three times before you decide that it's not for you. So she calls me two weeks later and says, I don't know who showed up in my bedroom, but that wasn't me. I was like possessed with power. And I said, exactly. You weren't that scared, helpless little girl on your back in the missionary position. You took your power back and you had the control of how deep, how fast, how, you know, like you, you totally were calling the shots. And I said, do you really want to experiment? Do you really want to see how far on these outer reaches of power and control would really float your boat? I said, what colors do you associate with power and control? She said, black and red I said, and what fabrics do you associate <laughs> leather and lace? And she said, is my next homework assignment to go to Frederick's of Hollywood? <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> that's where you want to go, whatever, wherever you want to go. But I said, you need to explore the dominatrix inside of you. That's been dying to get out all these years that you have never acknowledged. And she said, I just don't know how my husband would deal with that. I said, I guarantee you that if you ask your husband, could I be the dominatrix and you be my submissive? He will jump through hoops to make that happen. And sure enough, what he said to her was, baby, you can put a collar on me and I'll bark like a dog if that's what you want. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> totally transformed her entire persona when it came to sex. She showed up. She enjoyed it. She blew her husband's mind. Their marriage was better than ever before. She started talking to her ch her adult children about sex for the first time ever. She hmm. was liberated. So that's what's on the other side of understanding your fantasies and taking those thoughts captive, making them obedient to Christ, but unleashing them in your marriage bed. What's on the other side of that journey is liberation, freedom, passion and pleasure. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's really exciting. And really, I think a really good vision for all of us to work towards, you know, whether your struggles with fantasies or not, I mean, that should be the goal. Um, okay. You have a, another workshop and you may have already touched on it a little bit, but I, I want you to just make sure we get this across clearly because I think some of our audience will really benefit from it. You have one for couples at the well, and I imagine it would involve some of the same tools you've already mentioned, but can you just give some more clarity on how do couples work through these things together? Absolutely. I've been doing women at the well workshops for over 10 years now. And so oftentimes the women would go home with a whole new vision. Uh, woman, one woman was like, I'm going to go home and have a fest. <laughs> Her husband was like, who is this woman? And he sent me flowers and candy. And you're like, I would get that all the time. You know, notes from husband saying, I don't know what you did with the woman that I sent you, but I'm keeping the woman that you sent back because she is my dream lover. <laughs> but then I would hear from the women within a matter of months saying, I feel like I've been liberated in the bedroom, but I feel like my husband still has a lot holding him back. 
And how can I get him to work with you? So one-on-one was the only option until about three or four years ago, my husband and I said, why couldn't we do a couples at the well? Why couldn't they go on this journey together to figure out what each of their life experiences have done to their own fantasy template, how they can turn that into something that will liberate them as a couple? So we we have definitely tapped into something. We have a waiting list for our Couples at the Well workshops. We only offer them twice a year. We offer Women at the Well workshops four times a year. But okay. some, some couples just prefer to work one-on-one, and that is totally fine. I offer a 180 coaching package where within a 180-day span of time, your sex life will do a 180, and it'll be completely different than it's ever been before because wow. I'm going to grab you by the ankle. I'm going to pull you deep, and we're going to explore all the things that you've been repressing and we're going to explore all the hurdles that have been holding you back in the bedroom and give you both some freedom to discover the passion and pleasure that God intended for you to have. Mm, That's so good. How would you talk um, a a guy down who's maybe like afraid of if my wife goes on this journey, like I don't know what she's going to start expecting of me or is she going to come back a different person? Because, you know, that's like the funny thing about marriage, right? Is like we want the best for our partner. But then as soon as it involves them changing, it's going to bring up all those fears and sort of insecurities, right? How would you talk a guy through that? And then he realizes he may have to do some changing too. Right. And yeah, this is what I said to a man just this, just this week. I was telling him, I said, John, your wife is trying to like read these stories to you and show these movies to you. Like she's trying to show you what she likes just because it doesn't turn you on. That's beside the point. She's trying to show you what turns you on. Open yourself to the fact that she's trying to be a teacher and you need to be the student. And he hadn't even considered it through that lens that what what turns one partner on doesn't have to turn the other one on. You you didn't have the same life. You don't have the same fantasy template. So for him to understand that he had to grow and make room for his Mm. wife's fantasies too, that sex was not just about him and getting himself off. Sex was supposed to be about them both entering into that place where your inhibitions are lowered and the passions bubble up and that he needed to make room for that. So don't be afraid of it. Be more afraid of your wife not changing because if nothing changes, then nothing changes. But Mm. if she changes, that's going to open the door for you to see what you may need to change to become a better lover. And isn't that the main reason that men look at pornography anyway, trying to figure out how to be a good lover? Well, the answer is not on that screen vicariously through actors. The secret is by learning what really floats your mate's boat and what floats your boat and be courageous enough to share that with one another. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I don't, I, I don't know. This is, this is really good. I feel like we covered everything I want to cover, but is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have, Shannon? We have covered a lot of territory. Uh, you didn't particularly forget to ask this, but I do want to just add it in as a postscript. Okay. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I know that, I know that both men and women have a lot of guilt over the porn that they've looked at since they were little kids and over the masturbatory experiences where they were thinking about real life people, you know, not just figments of their imagination, but, you know, like plugging actual people in that they shouldn't have in their heads in a sexual way, you know, into the fantasy. Yeah, I know that there's a lot of guilt about that and maybe guilt about acting out sexually with other people. I want those who are of, of a Christian uh, paradigm, I want you to know that when Christ died on the cross, he didn't say, forgive them for their sins, except for the sexual ones. Those are too big. I'm not dying for those. We have to receive God's mercy and grace. God knew what he was doing when he made us sexual beings. And we didn't become sexual when we started acting out. We became sexual the moment we were conceived. We are sexual from cradle to grave, from conception to death. And we just need to accept this reality about who we are as human beings and stop being angry at God that he made us this way. He didn't He didn't make us this way and then set the standard so high that even a single thought should send you to hell. That is reading way too much legalism into the scriptures. I really Mm. encourage people to look at, take a hermeneutics class. Look at what the Bible really says about our sexuality. When you unpack every single scripture that is actually referring to sexual doctrine, you will see that there's not a ton of restrictions. There is freedom in the marriage bed. 
And I love to quote Song of Solomon. I delight to sit in my lover's shade. His fruit is sweet to my taste. Come and blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. That is scripture. And it's referring to oral sex and genitalia. Biblical scholars agree. So the idea that God is some sexual killjoy waiting to strike us down if we act out one too many times, you just got to get out of that mindset to experience freedom and grace and mercy and self-love. Yeah, that's so good. Okay, you actually, just one more I want to sneak in here before we wrap up the interview. We talked about leaders, right? And I um, kind of how leaders maybe are a little bit more subject, especially in a faith environment, to the suppression and then the dangerous behavior kind of swing or scale or whatever you want to call that. What would be some advice you could give to leaders who maybe are like, um, Shannon, I just don't know where to turn or where to go. I know that I am suppressing some of my stuff. But um, maybe they don't have those same kind of safe outlets. They can't talk to their partner. Where, where should they go? That's the issue is that when you're a leader in the church, you feel as if you're supposed to have your act totally together and you couldn't trust a deacon or an elder. And you certainly don't want to take that to your district superintendent or whatever. People know that that would be career suicide. Please reach out to, if not me, some counselor who is versed, well-versed in all things sexual. And, and I do want to, to kind of warn people too, a pastor can become ordained and a counselor become licensed without ever having taken a single human sexuality class. Yeah. So you need to find someone that this is their specialty and know that my, my docket is full of pastors and missionaries and like truly salt of the earth type of people. If you don't find someone safe to help you make sense out of it, the chances of you acting it out are so much greater. And so it really just would behoove you. And, and counselors are bound by confidentiality. So reach outside your church. Don't worry about trying to find somebody in your everyday life. Find a professional who is who, who is dedicated to your confidentiality, who can help you make sense of it and help you create the boundaries that you need to have to know that, so what if I have that thought? I know that it's based on my past trauma. I can walk in freedom. I don't act that out. I harness that energy. I make it obedient to Christ. I deliver that energy to my mate. Our marriage bed thrives as a result. That's the thing is when we do it the way that that God tells us to do it, your sex life will thrive. It's not a matter of hiding in the shadows and suffering because you don't understand yourself. Connect with someone who will help you understand. Yeah, yeah. Well, Shannon, this has been amazing. My goodness, thank you for your time and sharing your expertise. For people that want to connect with you and maybe find out a little bit more about what you do, what's the best way for them to do that? If they will go to shannonetheridge.com, it's S-H-A-N-N-O-N-E-T-H, R-I-D-G-E. There's no E in the middle of Etheridge like Melissa Etheridge. It's just etheridge.com. There they can click on the coaching link. They can click on the workshops link. They can also look into my books. Uh, Every Woman's Battle is what I would recommend for a woman who's struggling with acting out with pornography or uh, affairs. Uh, the Sexually Confident Wife for the woman who really does want to show up in her marriage bed. And The Fantasy Fallacy is the one that I recommend for people who are really wrestling with their fantasies. And then also the passion principles about celebrating freedom in the marriage bed. Amazing. Well, thank you again. We'll put links to all that in the show notes. But in the meantime, just appreciate you and appreciate what you're doing. Thanks for giving us some time today, Shannon. You are so welcome, Cynthia. Again, thank you for having me on and keep up the God work yourself, my friend. Thanks. Well, there you have it. That was Shannon Etheridge author of Every Woman's Battle and founder of uh, an incredible practice that you can see is clearly transforming lives all around the world. She has her system down pat. She's got a really rock solid philosophy and she's done her work, you know, on both ends, the clinical research-based side of the spectrum, but also, um, you know, just very good understanding of scripture, hermeneutics, exegesis, and, and really what it's like to, you know, break down some of these texts that are not always crystal clear about sexuality. I really appreciate Shannon and appreciate her perspective. All the links are in the show notes. And again, like I said, there, there were some things she shared that really caused me to think. And I don't know if you experienced that, if you experienced that yourself 
All I would say is, um, you know, just think about it, you know, walk, walk away and, and ask, you know, not do I agree or do I not agree? What we want to ask is, is there truth here? Is there, are there some things I'm missing out on that I haven't explored yet? We want to have open minds so that we can learn, so that we can grow and ultimately so that we can heal. Um, and I just encourage you, go check more of her stuff out. She has a podcast that she's planning to interview me on. Um, but I've listened to a couple of interviews. They're very transparent very in-depth, very insightful. And if maybe today's podcast was liberating, you're like, finally, somebody is talking about this stuff in ways that's like, there's no sugar coating, there's no innuendos, it's just like straight-laced, honest, cold hard facts and truth, then you should go check out her podcast as well. You're going to get a lot of benefit from it. I believe it's called Sexual Confidence on Tap. And um, it's yeah, Sexual Confidence on Tap podcast with Shannon Etheridge and friends. So there's that. And if you are struggling with a porn addiction um, and you know that maybe you need a little bit more help in this area because what you've done has only gotten you so far, then you can obviously check out some of our resources. Uh, we have a bunch of free, high-quality, premium resources to give you. But the best one, the cream of the crop, is The Last Relapse. It's my best-selling book for how to resolve the root issues of porn and masturbation through a systematic process. Uh, We've helped hundreds of guys get free through that. It's the reason I'm clean for six and a half years after a 15-year addiction myself. And I really don't see any reason why you can expect the same kind of results if you apply what you learn in that book. And you can get a free copy of it at thelastrelapsebook.com. I'd love for you to do that. In the meantime, guys, thank you so much for listening today. Have an amazing day. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. It's Sathya again. Thanks for listening to Unleash the Man Within. I wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a free ebook that I wrote for you called The Ultimate Guide to Porn Recovery. It provides a basic framework for the recovery process and a few of my top tips completely free of charge. You can get it now at www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. That's www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. Now, if you've been impacted by the podcast and you want to show some support in less than 60 seconds, there are three ways you can do that. First, you can leave a rating or review on your podcast platform. This lets people like you know that the content here is valuable. Secondly, you can share this episode with someone in your life that might benefit from the content. If you're passionate about helping other people experience freedom and success in their lives, this is one of the easiest ways to do that. And lastly, you can subscribe. I personally only listen to the podcast that I subscribe to. If you're seeking daily encouragement, guidance, and insight in your recovery journey, I highly recommend subscribing to Unleash the Man Within. Thanks for listening. I look forward to connecting with you very, very soon. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast by Sathya Sam and his guests are for general information only and should not be considered medical, clinical, or any other form of professional advice. Any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk.